Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. I invite you to take a copy of the scripture with me as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll be preaching today from verses 1 through 15. Uh, For the sake of time, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 so we gain the base context of what we are looking at today. So for the reading, verses 1 through 6, 2 Corinthians 11, invite you to stand please. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, where someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your people now as we take up your word. Cause us to be attentive. Cause us to think today. Cause us to see what we need to see. To believe what we need to believe. Awaken us, Lord, from those things that we would slumber over and take for granted. And cause us, Lord, to see the urgency of the hour in which we live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tolerance is a major word today. This need to tolerate basically everything. Thus one author said, we need to lead people to discern the difference between a godly gospel-centered tolerance and a worldly, spiritually devastating tolerance. So really what Paul's doing here and what my prayer today is, is to answer this question. What must the church tolerate and what must the church reject and why? My main idea is that followers of Christ must reject the teaching and practice of false teachers for the sake of sincere and pure devotion to Christ and his mission. First, followers of Christ must reject the teaching of false teachers for the sake of sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul begins, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, do bear with me. So what Paul's about to do is to fight fire with fire. He's going to indulge in boasting. And what he's doing is, so to speak, stooping to the level of those who are against him by giving a level of boasting in what he calls foolishness. But he does it not to defend himself here. 
His fear is that he's losing the congregation to greater fools. Here's his primary concern, verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So this begs the question, what is divine jealousy? What does that mean? One of the early church fathers, Christostom, said, God is said to be jealous, not in a human way, but so that everyone may know that he claims sovereign rights over those whom he loves and does what he does for their exclusive benefit. Human jealousy is basically selfish. Divine jealousy is both intense and pure. So what kind of jealousy does he say he has? Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now he's, he's using a word picture from their culture. That a father, and how this culture, patriarchal culture would, would, would work, that a father would agree with a man of a betrothal of his daughter. This period would last for one year, that, that she was going to marry him. And Paul is here using the illustration of himself as a spiritual father. I betrothed you, that is, I presented the gospel to you. You believed the gospel, so you have been committed to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Now, this has to do with the marriage day, the wedding day. And brothers and sisters, this is a kind of a complex word picture, but here's what you've got to understand. We're in that in-between period that we have been connected to Christ. We are betrothed to Christ but the day is coming of the great wedding when, when his church will be presented as his bride, where Revelation describes the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will be joined together with Christ for all of eternity. Now, Paul here is saying that you are toying around with these super apostles and you are on the verge of, of rejecting Christ, whom at your conversion you have been committed to for this marriage. Now the purity Paul's after here is not in this context or other places the Bible addresses it, so I'm not belittling it. But Paul here is not talking about sexual purity. Paul is talking about the purity of faith. Verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, how did the serpent deal with Eve? This is crucial. He came to her and he asked her one basic question with multiple implications. Here's what he asked her. Did God really say? Really? Did he really? Is that what he said? He still uses this today. This is still the temptation today. Or he will go a step further and say something God didn't say. <laughs> the question today is, how could you believe something that's thousands of years old? Did God really? Really? Is that what he said? It's significant that the serpent's seduction of Eve is not sexual, but it is, has to do with her mind denying the truth of what God has said. So Eve depicts the danger 
that the Corinthians faced, that their minds are going to be led astray. It's the danger that we have today, that our minds would be led astray from Christ. This flirting with adultery here, the adultery of a false gospel. He says that your thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The word sincere can be translated simplicity. This expresses an open freedom of communication in our communion with Christ. This is what the Corinthians have been called to. This is what all who are in Christ have been called to. That we have this simple, pure devotion, this communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these false teachers were very cunning. As they come and offer up this alternative false gospel, they did it with charisma, with eloquence of speech. And it is clear from this passage that the pure gospel alone is what joins us to and keeps us in a right relationship with Christ. A sincere devotion to Christ is possible only where the true and authentic gospel is taught and heard. Christians need to think about what they are being taught rather than being impressed by who's teaching them. I don't know how many times I've heard believers say to me, man, he's a powerful speaker, or she's a powerful speaker. I just love to hear her speak. You might like to hear somebody speak, but I have a question for you. What are they saying? What is it that they're communicating to you? Paul says... If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, which what Paul proclaimed has taken up much of the New Testament, what the apostles proclaimed has taken up all of the New Testament. If somebody comes and proclaims another Jesus than that, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you receive, the Holy Spirit whom we receive at salvation who comes to reside within us, or if you accept a different gospel, a different good news than the one you accepted, He says, you put up with it readily. In other words, they're listening to something that's just not true. Now, he gets to the very essence of the Christian faith, Jesus, Spirit, Gospel. Christ crucified and risen, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. That is the Gospel that we proclaim. There is no other way to God than through Jesus Christ and him alone. That the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes in to reside in the believer, to bring about the sanctifying work and to empower the believer to carry out the mission of God. The Holy Spirit does not live with inside of you to make you do wacky and crazy things. He's in you for his sake and for his glory. The good news, the gospel, is the good news of forgiveness and reconciliation with God in Christ. So we proclaim the real Jesus, the Christ who came and was crucified and buried and died, the real spirit and the the true gospel. And these things are inseparably linked, but they preach a different gospel. And hear me carefully. A different gospel is not the gospel. It's what Paul says in Galatians chapter one, verse six. You can turn there with me in just a few pages. I am astonished, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. There's not. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. For even if we 
or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one received, let him be accursed. So here's the question then. What were these super apostles preaching? They didn't preach a suffering Jesus. All they preached was a triumphant Jesus. Now we preach a a Jesus risen from the grave, but they had no business with a Christ who would suffer. I had a, a music minister one time say to me at the end of a youth conference after he heard what the youth were singing, he said, why would you sing songs about the blood? Ooh. What? He had no place in his mind for suffering Jesus. They, they, they proclaimed an overpowering and overwhelming spirit. This is why Paul had to deal with all of these things surrounding tongues and miracles and all that because this is what these men were focusing on. And they didn't preach a gospel to set you free from sin and judgment. No. They preached an overcoming gospel. A healthy, wealthy gospel. Jesus came to make you better. Now, brothers and sisters, this sounds like the American gospel that you can turn on your television set today. So this, this, this American gospel is not a new one. It's as old as time. As people take and twist it and turn it. I want to commend something to you. I don't do this often. There's a, a, a movie that you can watch. Actually, there's a second part out now. It's called The American Gospel. And it exposes the prosperity gospel for what it is, a false gospel. And it clearly exposes false teachers for who they are and what they are proclaiming. Now, here's my question. Why must we reject the teaching and practice of false teachers? It's not just see it for what it is, Why must we reject it? Answer. Followers of Christ must reject the practice of false teachers for the sake of the mission of Christ. I just want you to think about this before I go any further. How many practices by false teachers are now in evangelical Bible-believing churches? I'll just use a ludicrous example. And, And I'm not saying this makes you a false teacher. Okay? I'm almost scared to use this. But have you noticed in a lot of churches, there are no pulpits anymore? They're gone. You got a stool or something non-threatening to, to talk to people. Well, that didn't come from Bible preaching. That came from false teachers. What I'm saying is, we are slowly taking what they're doing and adopting part of their pragmatics into the church, and it's dangerous. It's not just what they say, it's what they do. Verse 5. Indeed, I consider that I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every, every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul here is confronting the idea that he's inferior to these super apostles. Here's what he admits. I'm not a trained speaker. But he refuses to use their standards to evaluate the ministry that's been given to him by Christ. 
It's not eloquence which commended Paul's message. It was the power of God to save. He does not, he, he defends right knowledge which led to right proclamation. He may not have mastered the rhetoric and the skill of these Corinthian teachers or what the Corinthians expected a teacher to sound like. Paul was capable of communicating the gospel. If you go back to the very beginning, the first letter he writes to them, in the very onset, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't trying to sound like your teachers. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now that's significant, because they would not have bought into any form of weakness and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might rest, not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And now he addresses the accusation. He separates himself in his preaching. Now he, he, he addresses the accusation of sin that he has committed against the Corinthians by the super apostles and apparently adopted by many in the church. Verse 7. Do I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you for free of charge? Now here's the question. How, how did he humble himself? What is this sin he humbled himself? You know what it is? You ready for this? Some of us need to hear this. He got a job. Seriously. He showed up in Corinth to preach the gospel for free. We're going to get to that. Run out of money. He met these tent makers. He knew how to make tents. So he made tents to earn money. He said, what does that matter? Acts 18.3 says, because of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Here's why. Somebody who was a teacher, that's just the word we'll use for it, you got to remember, you had no television, you had no radio, you had no internet. How'd you get your information? Get your information from people like these teachers, these trained people. So the Corinthian culture would have said, for a teacher to do manual labor, that's below him. How dare somebody that educated, that eloquent, use their hands to do work? They would have expected, in turn, that when they heard one of these speakers, they would pay them for what they said. Instead, Paul preaches the gospel for free. He goes on, verse 8. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. If you remember back to chapters 8 and 9, these poor Macedonians, not only did they help the church in Jerusalem, they also helped Paul. Philippians 4.15, which is one of those Macedonian churches, he says, You Philippians yourselves knew that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So Paul uses that word sarcastically. I robbed these other churches because I accepted from them. Now here's the principle. This principle is crucial. When you go to a place that people have never heard the gospel, you preach the gospel for free. For example, 
If, if we ever have an evangelistic event or revival or something like that, we never take an offering. I, I, I would never want a lost person to think they're paying for what they just heard. But how does somebody like this get paid? So Paul says, I get a job. Second thing he did is he received support from churches. Churches are gatherings of believers who understand who they are in Christ and why they're here on the earth. They're here on the earth to carry out the mission of the gospel. And the mission of the gospel requires financial support of sending missionaries and supporting those who teach the scripture and equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now he's emphatic. Look in verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. Now he hits one more accusation. They're saying, you wouldn't take our money because you don't love us. Paul says, you you know I love you, and God knows. Yes, I love you. But here's what I can promise you. Here's a line in the sand. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. In other words, I have absolutely no plans to receive money where I'm preaching the gospel from those who I'm bringing the gospel to regardless of the culture, regardless of what people think about it. So why? Why would Paul do this? Why would he draw this line in the sand and say, I'm not taking your money? All right, let me give you two reasons. One is very practical and it's real. Paul is avoiding being obligated to the rich people in Corinth who are going to tell them to say what they want to hear. So he's not taking their money. Number two, Paul wants to make clear that the free gift of salvation, that that message is delivered free of charge. In Isaiah 55, 1, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has the money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you offer the gospel to someone free of charge? Here's why. Here's how warped our human mind and heart is. We can think we can pay for it. But if I give you money, then I'm paying for salvation. Salvation is free. It is the free gift of God. And wherever the message of salvation goes, where it has never been preached or heard, it must be taken by those who are not receiving anything from those whom they preach to. That's why we support missionaries. That's why we support people to go to the unreached with the name of Jesus. Now, let's take all of this and ask ourselves the so what question today. Am I identifying and rejecting the teaching and practices of false teachers? Are we, that is, are we as a local church identifying and rejecting the teaching and practices of false teachers? I hope you've been listening to my sermon, but I need you to really pay attention for the next few minutes. I am not implying that we should constantly listen to what's being preached or taught with the expectation that we're about to hear false teaching. Hearing something incorrect and identifying someone as a false teacher are different. Listen carefully to me. 
when we hear something incorrect, we should gently and lovingly question what we've heard. Did you mean? If, in fact, they say, yeah, that's what I meant, then you should correct that and rebuke that in light of Scripture. You say, what are you getting at, preacher? I think some of us have got our doctrine in Scripture so lined up that all we do is sit and listen for somebody to say something wrong. That we're always trying to sniff out false teaching. Now hear me. Am I saying for you to roll over when you hear something incorrect? Is that what I'm saying? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is some of you are not hearing the truth because you're always hearing, looking for what's false. That's what I'm saying. Now, what is a false teacher? False teachers are those who practice and regularly teach what is in opposition and in contradiction to the teaching and doctrine of Scripture. They do two things. They practice what is in opposition and contradiction to the teaching and doctrine of Scripture. They buy airplanes. Okay? In the name of Jesus. Number two, they regularly teach what they say is in opposition and contradiction to the teaching and doctrine of Scripture. When we identify a false teacher, we should expose him or her and we should reject them. Now here's what I think some of you do, and I want to rebuke it. Well, you know, she says a lot of good things. If she is a false teacher, stop listening to her. Well, you know, he's very charismatic. I enjoy listening to him. And you may enjoy him right into total deception. If you think you're parsing out everything they say, you're deceived. Because the evil one is a master of delivering false teaching. When you identify somebody as such, reject them. Don't listen to them have nothing to do with what they present or what they write. John MacArthur, some could argue he's in a bad mood, but John MacArthur is pastored in California. He has confronted and dealt with falsehood all around him his entire ministry. He wrote these things. I'm grateful for this brother, by the way. Three valuable principles must be distilled from Paul's contrast of himself with false apostles. Number one, believers must not be taken in by smooth, clever, seemingly spiritual, gifted speakers. Such speech may mask satanic lies and deception. Many false teachers use biblical terms, but they invest them with a radically different message. Number two, Believers must be go, go beyond the teacher's words and examine his life. Religion is big business for false teachers. They are consumed with accumulating wealth and power, and they are not true servants of Christ. 
Finally, believers must avoid the temptation to make tolerance a virtue. (laughs) I can already hear the email now. Well, you're a little hard on people. Tolerance has become the supreme virtue only to those who lack strong convictions. I'll repeat that sentence one more time. Tolerance is the supreme virtue of those who lack strong convictions. To discern the true from the false spiritual leaders is vital to the health of the church. To fail to exercise discernment is to open the door wide of the sheepfold and allow Satan's savage wolves to ravage the flock of God. Brothers and sisters, much is at stake. And we must take the stance of Paul. Verse 12, what am I doing? And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claims of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You see, Satan doesn't come to us as Satan, brothers and sisters. Sin doesn't present itself as sin either. It comes in the guise of virtue. It comes in in teaching of error that that sounds like somebody's advocating the truth when actually they're doing something entirely different. They boast of their mission. They boast of their accomplishment. Well, what they are are deceitful workmen. They are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he makes a clear association here. And no wonder... They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now this is frightening. This this ought to make you sit up on the edge of your seat. This is what Paul is saying. These people aren't just false teachers. They are servants of Satan himself. Do you see this? No wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Then he says this, their end, their end will correspond with their deeds. I want you to turn over with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives these two incredible teaching word pictures. I want us to read them together and draw a conclusion. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There are going to be a bunch of preachers on TV and on the internet who are going to stand before Jesus and Jesus is going to say, I have no idea who you are. None. Oh, Jesus, I preached. Thousands came. I healed people. We spoke in tongues. We had incredible meetings. Who are you? How about the people who build their life on what these people say? 
Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. It's not just the false teachers that are at stake, brothers and sisters. It's those who listen and adopt what the false teachers say. And on that day, their end will correspond with their deeds. Not only are they going to hear, I never knew you, there's going to be a great collapse where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me appeal to you for just a moment. There's so much spiritual passivity in America. Maybe the guise of tolerance or whatever else it is. There's so much spiritual passivity. People are moving through life without any kind of thought that they are hurling toward an eternal destiny. They're not even thinking about it. And then they say things like, well, you know, there's just so many different teachings out there. Who can believe any of it? Listen to me. Jesus Christ made an emphatic statement. Emphatic. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusivity. No tolerance there. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That means that you trust in what Christ did on the cross, dying in your place, bearing your sin, bearing the wrath of God which you deserve, that he was buried and died, and on the third day to prove who he is, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, he rose from the grave. It is the purity of that gospel message that we base our lives on. That is the hope for our future. That is the rock that you stand on. And brothers and sisters, it may get worse. The storms may get harder and the floods may get deeper. But here's the promise of the Bible. When you stand on that rock, you will not collapse. So let us stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for those in this room that are spiritually passive, that are giving no thought to their spiritual life. Oh God, Would you take what has been said today and cause them to reflect and to think? For those, Lord, that have have looked to you and trusted you for salvation, who, who have become passive now and lost their sincere and pure devotion, may you bring them to repentance today to turn and to say, I trust you, Jesus. You're 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 the only place I need to look. Lord, will you do a work in the hearts and lives of those who gather? Lord, now may you take this song, may you take what we sing, this simple song, and may you encourage your people as they encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Blessing God, we pray in Jesus' name.